Hi everyone, this is Michael. Before introducing the guest for this episode, I want to take a few moments to acknowledge the really significant events that have been unfolding in the United States. Specifically, I mean the protests and the really important reasons for them. On this podcast, we haven't recorded any material specifically with respect to these events, but we have talked about what we might do in the future. Speaking at least for myself, um, I would say that in developing and implementing the episodes for this podcast, it has just become increasingly clear that we can't divorce environmental from social issues. We can't think about environmental sustainability without thinking about environmental and social justice. And I hope that this is an increasingly strong direction that um, this now about year long project takes. So with that said, I do want to introduce the guest for this episode. John Parker is currently a director at the National Science Foundation within the Division of Social and Economic Sciences. John is a sociologist of science, and I was really excited to talk to him about his perspectives on the National Science Foundation itself, but also other scientific organizations that I've been a part of, most especially the Resilience Alliance. And one of the most important lessons I think I heard from John is something I've heard from other guests on this show is the importance of invisible work, the difficulties in recognizing the invisible work that so many people do, marginalized people do. And relatedly, the importance of confronting the dynamics of a cumulative advantage, whereby initial advantages in wealth or resources or power held by an individual or group is then used by that group to further accumulate um, those resources often at the expense of other people. So I think these are some important ideas that we all need to be thinking about, and I hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Well, John Parker, it's been a, it's been a while, man. Um, yeah, I mean, so how are you before we kind of get into career journeys and all that stuff? Are you, You're in D.C. now? We're in D.C. We're in Alexandria next to the National Science Foundation where I'm working now. Uh, we're doing okay. You know, my wife's a professor at Purdue, and um, luckily she's been teaching online this semester. We've got a toddler, and uh, I'm working at NSF full-time. So, I mean, it's a heavy pull um, with two jobs and a toddler at home. Uh, but we're doing okay, you know, relatively, we're doing all right. Um, NSF went to teleworking almost seamlessly. It's a great organization that way, and uh, the academic job lends itself to it. Uh, we're doing okay. We could use a break. We could use a babysitter uh, once in a while, but we're doing okay. Sure, yeah. And so you're, you're a program director in the Division of Social and Economic Sciences at NSF, is that right? Yeah, the social sciences are broken down into social and economic sciences and uh, behavioral and uh, cognitive sciences. I'm on the social and economic sciences side of it, and I'm directing science and technology studies and uh, ethical and responsible research, uh, both of those funding programs right now. But I'm also um, a PO on coupled natural human systems where I see a ton of proposals um, on resilience related stuff, which is interesting because in a way NSF is feeding this movement. Um, and that program in particular was almost designed for this kind of thing. It's very interesting to see. But the thing that's interesting to me is the way in which um, it feeds the resilience movement, right? It feeds this ongoing 
movement within a field and the, um, the way it becomes institutionalized in these kinds of organizations and becomes a way of propelling particular kinds and forms of science into the future. That's interesting to me as someone who saw the resilience stuff start from the beginning and now seeing it as a huge funding initiative involving tens of millions of dollars in the biggest funding organization for research in the country. It's really interesting. Right. I mean, so I met you through the Resilience Alliance. And so I'd love to, you know, take a step back and ask you about um, the journey that you've taken to this point. And I tried to internet stalk you to find some of these details and I wasn't as successful as I wanted to be. So I'll just have to ask you some of these questions. Sure. Um, I feel like I do remember you being from Arizona. Is that correct? Yeah, I grew up um, in Arizona in part. I grew up in the West, in Colorado, in Oregon, and in Arizona. Okay. And then where did you go to undergrad? Northern Arizona University, uh, home of the Lumberjacks. And okay. then did a uh, master's and PhD at Arizona State. In Tempe, yeah, that's what I remember. Okay. Right. And what was your, I mean, I think of you as a sociologist, particularly a sociologist of science or a sociologist who's interested in science and interdisciplinary scientific collaborations. What is your PhD technically in? My PhD is in sociology. And yeah, I consider myself a sociologist of science. Um, and I did my dissertation on um, the ways in which social science was starting to creep into ecology at the turn of the, the, turn of the millennium in 2000. And so my case studies were the Resilience Alliance, um, the National Center for Ecological Analysis and Synthesis, and the Long-Term Ecological Research Sites. And it was a comparative analysis of the ways in which they were collaborating with social scientists at this moment when there was a wide acknowledgement that there's no place on earth that isn't being affected by humans. Right. Um, okay, I mean, so I'd love to talk to you about the lessons that you feel like you learned about those two organizations. Because I remember, I never, you know, I would see you for like, a day or something every two or three years. And that's pretty much what it's been. But I remember being really interested. I really loved being a part of the Resilience Alliance as a Resilience Alliance young scholar. It felt very welcoming as a social scientist. I was aware that it had this ecological background. And my impression was that you were fairly positive in your evaluation of the Resilience Alliance, but I'd love to just hear if you have an update on your, your feelings or opinions about it as, an attempt at an interdisciplinary science network? Sure, I can say a number of things about it. I'm writing a, a book prospectus on it now, and I think the reason I am is because I finally got into a point where I think there's a story, there's a, there's a conclusion to the story, at least a conclusion to part of the story. Okay. Um, you're a biologist and you wanna study the life course of an ant, it's a relatively short thing. If you want to study a blue whale or a, you know, a Greenwich, a Greenland shark, it's a different, it's a different issue. If you're studying a group like the Resilience Alliance, you got to follow them for 15 or 20 years. And I've done that. And I think um, I've seen the full life cycle. Wow. Incredibly successful. Um, we see these kinds of groups. There's three or four per discipline per generation. They're rare. They're very rare. Um, and when they happen, they create new fields, new disciplines. And the way to think about it is as a, a social movement in science, just like social movements outside of science. Um, think about the ways in which the NAACP or the National Organization of Women propel social movements for equality in the country where they have. And then think of the way in which network organizations like the Resilience Alliance propel new and different forms of science. Um, and compete with other kinds of groups. You can think about how they've competed with people in vulnerability studies and adaptation studies. Radically successful. Um, and the first part of my 
study of this group has been about how they achieve that success and the kinds of social processes and organizational processes that lead to radically new forms of creativity and environmental science. More recently, I've been interested in why these things fall apart. Why does creativity uh, decay? Why does it atrophy? If you really want to understand creativity, you have to understand uh, not only what makes it positive, but also what makes it fall apart. More recently, I've been looking at that, and I'm writing a paper right now, a pretty good draft. I'm going to try and get to American Sociological Review on how theory groups die, and it'll be using the RA as the main case. The RA is the main case for an, because, it's, because it's completed its life cycle? Is that kind of what you were saying? And, or, I think that it's completed the phase of, um, what, they're called coherent groups in science. Okay. Um, theology of science. And I think it's, it's completed its first revolution. The, result, the rays are still there, and I think that's um, an energetic organization. I don't think it's the same as RA. I've been to some of those meetings. It's not the same dynamics. It's not the same people. It's not doing the same things. It's building, and it's leading to new things for the people involved, but it's not the RA. And uh, the RA was something different, and I think that thing is gone now. Interesting. So what do you think made it so successful? I mean, this is something I said, and I'll mention something that I struggle with a lot in this context, right, is how, how much can we generalize from a case, right? So how much of the success is due to idiosyncrasies and personalities? And how much of it is based on some kind of generalizable principle? Yeah, I think it's a big issue, of course, in a lot of different kinds of research and some of the studies that um, you're involved in there in community studies, community resources, of course, run into the same issues, which is why uh, Lynn did a lot of the things that she did. Um, yeah, you have to look at cross cases. And so I've gathered cases from about a dozen cases in science. Um, and I'm also looking at cross fields now into art, things like that. People like Michael Farrell and Ugo Corti have done a good job of looking at sports and art. And what you see is that... Um, these kinds of social processes repeat a lot. Um, you can look at groups in ancient Greece and Hellenic Greece, um, some of the philosophical groups there. Randall Collins has done some of this. You can look at uh, groups in ancient India. You can look at groups in um, Japanese philosophy. And you can look at the Vienna Circle. You can look at the development of molecular biology in the US. And they follow a lot of the same patterns. You see leadership roles, organizational and intellectual roles usually split between two people. Um, high status intellectuals are important, but not necessary. Some of these groups come up from the margins. That depends a lot on the field. Um, rituals, solidarity, finding emotional bonding, um, getting to involve the whole person, taking trips away, getting out of other institutions, developing a culture um, that is stronger than the bonds that you have with the rest of the scientific community. Um, that is all part of the prerequisites, I would say. It's sufficient, necessary, but not sufficient. Um, you have to have good ideas. And good ideas are also a social process that takes a group to refine, to anneal, to challenge, to really develop a full theory takes several people a long time. And uh, there's a lot of processes that we see in these groups that repeat and recur again and again. Um, I've written some papers on it. I'm drawing off the top of my head, but there are essential processes to the development of these groups. Yeah, I mean, that's already a nice like checklist, right? That you need, and I've heard this before a little bit, you, that... But it's interesting, right? Some of those things you, you hear and you think, well, of course that makes sense, but then a lot of groups don't do those things, right? Like a lot of groups don't have some kind of play-based or non-work-based ritual. And the idea is that, no, we're here to work together and that's what we're going to do. But when I think about, you know, my mo the, the collaborations I've had that have felt most memorable have been the ones where I was just having fun. Sure. I remember being with you in um, the Camargue 
after hours at the RA, <clears throat> sitting around, having wine with the rest of the Rays. I think Jacobo was there, Mike was there probably, talking, having a good time, um, deeply bonding. People that you still know, people you probably still collaborate with, right? People you'd walk a long mile for. These groups become high points in people's lives. It's not just their jobs. I mean, these are your friends. These are the people you'll go to the mat for. And you've developed these processes that give that level of commitment. Um, you're willing to take risks and do things that you wouldn't otherwise. And you see that, I mean, this is a good thing, right? That we're, we're like taking risks, maybe. It, maybe, I mean, these are the same dynamics that happen in cults, right? I mean, it happens in sure. science, in music, it happens in art. Sometimes people push each other to do terrible things. Look at Charles Manson. In a sense, that's a coherent group out in the desert, pushing itself further and further, egging each other on, goading okay. each other in terms of violent creativity. All right, so this just took a morally complicated turn. Okay. So let's, let's take a step back and say yeah. that these groups that we see in science are part of a broader phenomena that we see across all different kinds of social fields, creative groups that become um, self-determined and create a path for themselves in, in new areas. Um, cults are those groups in religion. Coherent groups are those groups in science. Entrepreneurial groups are those groups in business. Steve Jobs had a business cult. Yeah. And so cult is, a, is generally a pejorative term, right? And so, there, and so is the adjective cultish. Do you think that there's a, a danger of, of cultishness in science and, say, worship of, say, celebrity-oriented intellectual leaders? Worship of intellectual leaders, worship of ideas, right? Right. I mean, this is something that has been critiqued in the Resilience Alliance, right? Um, that it's, it's dogmatic, that people are um, proselytizing, right? That it's, it's, it's church-like. You saw the same thing with the Skinnerians in Colombia. That was called a cult. Um, their outpost at Arizona State was called Fort Skinner, where they would battle all the other psychologists. Um, Can you say yeah, a bit more about um, that, John? Sorry, I don't think people are going to be able to follow you. Yeah, so B.F. Skinner, people probably know, is the famous behaviorist in psychology. Um, pigeons, uh, boxes, those kinds of things. Um, he created, essentially, what you could call a scientific cult, a coherent group that created uh, Skinnerian behavioral psychology. They had their own journals. They had their own meetings. They had their own rituals. And they created their own scientific outposts around the country where they could champion their cause, push the movement, and defend it from outsiders. My home at Arizona State was one of those places. The sociology department was actually based in the lab where they had the rooms where they did the behavioral studies. It was in the 60s they used to do it. So across fields, you also see these groups pushing science in a way that is dogmatic, and it wouldn't work otherwise, but sometimes they push it too far. I mean, I guess that depends on what you mean by too far and what the current state of science is. Yeah. I mean, something that I've struggled with, I mean, I have struggled with some of the intellectual content in the Resilience Alliance, even though I have this deep, I would say both emotional and intellectual bond to the material and the people. It has felt like there's a lot of, a lot of the papers feel kind of a-empirical. There's these broad kind of highfalutin concepts of panarchy, et cetera. And it's, I don't, if there's, it felt like there's this implicit idea that the younger folks should be the, can go out and measure this stuff. And it's like, well, that's actually really hard to do. Well, you see this dynamic, Craig Allen is trying, in a lot of these groups, the first group creates the edifice, right? It creates the, the, the broad framework. Think about Jesus with basic principles. Think about um, Niels Bohr outlining the, the beginnings of quantum physics. They paint these huge, broad pictures and beautiful strokes of these grand ideas, and then they leave the next generation to fill it in. It's what Kuhn called normal science. It's the mopping yep. network. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it feels hard to avoid. What was that, 1962, the structure and something of scientific revolutions? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
And something, I mean, I'm reminded of that because it feels like a lot of what we see is one paradigm being replaced just with another one. So people will be, so people will criticize one paradigm. Like, oh, you know, mainstream neoliberal economics, that's, that's just dogma. There's no such, you know, it's just a whole bunch of comparative statics with artificial curves, blah, blah, blah. And then like we replace that with our own adaptive lingo. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard people in resilience debate and there's online debates with some of the central resilience folks and with scientists and political ecology. And they're going back and forth and back and forth and they're just talking past each other. Um, they're coming yeah. from different precepts. The basic epistemological assumptions of what they're trying to accomplish are different. In some sense, it mirrors the current political situation in the US. You just, there's no common ground. Right, absolutely. Yeah, it's just this, this, these norms of mutual dismissiveness. Yeah, so something that, that, that in my own um, scientific cults associated with Lynn Ostrom, right? We, there was one of the things that I noticed most strongly with her passing was just how difficult inter, the, the loss of leadership can be and intergenerational transfer of norms, right? So you mentioned that the, the, resili- the RA, the Resilience Alliance, is not the same anymore. And so I wonder whether there's some inevitable struggles um, when inevitably um, leaders retire, uh, at least. So, so how much of this is kind of the inevitable challenge of intergenerational knowledge transfer and norm transfer? Is that, is that part of this like life cycle idea that you're talking about with respect to the Resilience Alliance? That's certainly part of it. I mean, part of it's biological life cycles of humans and the replacement of some people. Um, there are certain roles that are um, crucial and irreplaceable. Think about someone like Buzz Holling. I have a quote here about Buzz, in fact. Um, I'm writing and I say, you know, specific social roles are crucial for coherent group dynamics and the loss of key roles diminished RA's creative capacity. Most critical was the retirement of Buzz Halling, um, the intellectual leader, charisma, enthusiasm, lent courage and ideas to the group. As one of the core RA members told me, a lot of that came from Buzz, to be honest. He was a creative genius that would pose the new ideas and those shoes are really difficult to fill. That kind of creativity at the paradigmatic level that Buzz was able to create these intriguing ideas is difficult to replicate. So having someone like Buzz, having that intellectual leader, um, the emotional leader of the group, someone who also gave the rest of them courage, who gave them uh, empathy and who allowed them a voice is absolutely central. And when those things fall apart, uh, the group often falls apart. Same with the organizational leader. And I think, the RA has struggled with that to some extent too, uh, with Brian retiring and other people trying to step up. So is there some inevitability here? Or just, you talked about the kind of, so the biological life cycle of people, which of course we're all intimately familiar with, is there an organizational life? Well, you said that there kind of is. So are we yeah. gonna have just like, you know, one's gonna come up and, and that's gonna trough and then some, another one's gonna kind of come up and maybe take its place? Is that, is there a broader narrative there? Yeah, I think so. I mean the hounds are ever after the hares and other groups, other new um, upstart groups come and try and, and, and argue and fight with those who are in charge. And one of the main challenges of upstart groups like the RA is once you have a successful revolution, um, where are you at right now? You become um, the fastest gun in town and people come and start shooting for you. Right. That leads to part of the creative decay of the group. Um, something I'm calling drama and defensiveness. So the group winds up engaging in these kinds of uh, conflicts with other groups in a competitive kind of competition for attention space, for journal space, for resources. 
Um, and in that process, first of all, those groups um, air cogent criticisms of each other that weaken their perspective. And second of all, they lose energy fighting each other rather than trying to propel the movement. So it's one of the dynamics I see that links the group to the field um, that starts to create this process of creative decay. In addition to the enlargement of the group in a way that loses the small group processes, the emotional feel, um, differences and divergence among group as it gets bigger. What do the different Resilience Alliance nodes need and want? What are they willing to do? Those things became different over time. Um, also, as you mentioned, the difference between the younger folks and older folks, this degeneration process whereby um, the people who come later aren't as emotionally wed to the ideas as those who created them, and they're more right. willing to challenge them, and that creates conflict in the group. They're also um, not as happy doing the mopping up work, doing the shop work, trying to actually measure these things on the ground where the originators were able to uh, create these huge pillars of, of theory, um, their job is not that. And sometimes that also doesn't feel so good. You mentioned that you're writing a book. Remind me, I mean, so the, is the book gonna be focused a lot on the Resilience Alliance and these dynamics? Exactly, yeah. So right now, in terms of the RA, I have a couple, three projects I'm working on. One is a paper that's just about creative decay in these groups and how it happens using the RA as a main case, but also looking at other groups in science. Another one's gonna be on the RAIS and the relationship between the RAIS and the senior RA and thinking about this tension in science that Kuhn talked about between tradition and innovation and how that plays out in those groups. And okay. then from full book perspectives I'm working on right now, I'm gonna send it into Chicago, been in, talking to the editor there, no contract, um, but the idea would be to write a full book about the entire life course of the RA, but then do comparisons with other groups. Wow. Yes. And so for folks who don't know the raise, I think I used the term earlier too, Resilience Alliance Young Scholars. And so that's how I got involved. Was that how you got involved too, John? Or were you always, was it kind of, it was for you a, a unit of study only? I got involved as um, I got a fellowship from the National Science Foundation. And the focus was in urban ecology. They picked out several PhD students from several different fields and got us to work together to look at urban ecology from inter interdisciplinary perspectives. <clears throat> Involved in that was Chuck Redman, Nancy, uh, Nancy Grimm, Ann Kinzig, folks that had direct ties to the RA. Um, so I got involved in it that way. I met Buzz in 2001, 2002, and then I turned RA into an object of study after I spent the summer of 2003 there working in Kale's group, and I saw what was happening there. I, I realized the rituals they were having, the dynamics they were having is not something that we see a lot in science and started to follow the group at that point. Yeah. I mean, really, I mean, yeah, you're, a lot of what you're saying is, has, resonates with how I felt about the Resilience Alliance for a long time. I, I tell this story a lot, but when I first got into grad school, I had a dean show up and talk to a bunch of the, the first year PhD students. And she said, you know, you're about to embark on a, monast a monastic experience. And I think she meant it positively, but it's, to me, it sounded not like not a lot of fun. I was like, I don't want to be a monk. I want to talk to people. And, and I, I actually thought about leaving grad school after the first year, year and a half before I got involved with Lynn and her workshop. And it partly was because I was being trained to be a technocrat, but the other part is that it was, it felt socially isolating in the way that you feel is a stereotype of PhD education a lot of the time. And so it was to move from that from to this more of a workshop environment really fed me in ways that of course, before you're fed, you don't sometimes know, know that you're hungry. 
Exactly. And working with people like Lynn puts you in a different position. I mean, think about the people, um, think about the rays that are in Stockholm. Yeah. About the benefits that they reap from being in that position and that you reap from being close to Lynn. Absolutely. Right. I mean, there's gravitas. You're associated with a Nobel Prize winner. They're associated with the highest you know, ranking ecologists in the world. Um, the networking opportunities, the access to new ideas. Um, mentioning these things in NSF matters. I was in a, recently at a, uh, a, uh, a panel and someone said, well, you know, these people know the main folks that were involved in the RA and that mattered in that panel for getting potentially thought about, for considered for, you know, these things are considerations. It matters. They propel you. These groups and, and Lynn's group and the RA are, are like trampolines or catapults for scientific careers. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think a lot of it is, it's about legibility. I go back to that a lot since reading, and I've mentioned this, James Scott in his book, Seeing Like a State a lot in this podcast, right? But it's, it, none of us are going to have the time to have in-depth conversations with most people. So we need these markers of authority and prestige. And so we use them. That, and that's, to me, that's what you're talking about. It's, it's, I can read your grant proposal, but I also kind of want to know like who's the team and who's on it, et cetera. And there, I know there's a debate in terms of like how much attention should be paid to that. Sure. I mean, down to the level of citations. Citations have an emotional pull when you read something. Mm. Yeah. This, there's this one question that's nagging at me is like, what's the implication of being sensitized to all these dynamics? Because I felt for a while, I've always chafed at this idea that science is, and no one's kind of imposed this on me, so maybe I'm just projecting, right? There's, there's this pseudo, pseudo narrative I have in my head that people think that science is a meritocracy. That, you know, this, the idea of the lone genius gunslinger kind of going out there, you know, writing their book, whatever it is. And there's this, like, sometimes it feels like, at least superficially, this ferocious denial of how incremental knowledge production actually is. But I don't really, like, you know, I want to have this discourse. I want to change how we talk, how we evaluate each other. But in terms of, like, practical implications, uh, there I falter a little bit. Because I think it's important to have these sensitivities when we're engaging with each other. And maybe that's, I mean, that's important, you know, changing how we respond to each other. Because I feel like sometimes we talk about how do we change things? We actually undervalue just all of the little small interactions that we have day in, day out. You know, but what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's several. You mentioned several things. Um, one is the idea of a lone scientist. And it's just, it's patently absurd. Every one of us uses everyone else's ideas. And the minute we come up with an idea, it's open to the community. It's like an IPO. Um, science is communalistic in that sense. Secondly, we're all connected to other folks and that's why we make it. Um, the folks that make it in science are those that are best connected to strong, high status mentors. If you wanna make it in science, you better find a strong mentor. Most folks don't. What we know is that science is incredibly stratified. 80% of the publications are produced by 20% of the scientists. 80% of the citations are to 20% of the papers. This 80-20 rule is law-like across fields and across science. The real interesting question, one of the interesting questions to me is, are people at the top the best? And what does the best mean? You're, you're, let's, let's take you. You do good science and you're related to Lynn. And I, I take you to be one of the leaders in your field. I haven't studied your field, but I'm imagining that you're among those folks. Just having an editorship and doing this kind of thing shows it. Most folks don't. Most folks just teach. Most folks don't publish past their dissertation. So you've worked with Lynn, who's a cutting edge person. You have good ideas. You have good networks. Um, and you're there by virtue of those things. I'm going to say it's not because you're brilliant. You're a smart guy. I'm a smart guy. But most of this has to do with the resources that we get in our careers. Mm. Um, 
what does good mean then? Does good mean what you are because that's where the good ideas are? Would good be something else if someone else made it there? What does good mean in relation to the current state of knowledge? I mean, good is what the experts say good is to some extent. Um, but, it's, but you're questioning the criteria by which we evaluate who's an expert in the first place. Right, it's an interesting question, right? Because you are at the top, you get to define what excellence is. But at the same time, there's other ways it could have gone if other folks would have gotten there. It's self-perpetuating, it's path dependent, and we get here because our mentors were good, and then we get access to the things that make us have good careers. Yep. Yeah, I'm reminded of this idea of the Matthew effect, right? Where it's essentially just the rich get richer, the cited get cited. A cumulative advantage, exactly what Merton called the Matthew effect. Yeah. The last couple of years, I've assigned this book, The Secret to Our Success, by this anthropologist, Joe Henrik, and he talks about, you know, human beings are social learners, but if you're going to be a social learner, you need to figure out who you're going to learn from. You don't want to do it randomly. You don't, right? So learning and cooperation have this very strong commonality. You're only going to do it effectively if you do it in a biased way. I want to, I want to learn from whatever the best is, and I want to cooperate with people who are going to cooperate with me. If I do either of those things randomly, I'm going to be in a bad way. Well, okay, that means for social learning, I need to figure out, you know, who should I learn from and who has the prestige to be a marker of that type of individual. So we've got arguably built into our psychology, this idea that we should pay attention to some folks and not others. Right, right. And, and what you're talking about has implications in two ways at the individual selfish level. And I did this during my dissertation. I said, who are the best people in this university that I can get on this dissertation committee? And, and I consciously did that. So we can move ourselves in that direction, like flowers turning to the light towards the resources. Um, at a broader scale, the way that I'm forced to think about it now, and I think about it anyway as a sociologist, but as someone who's now husbanding resources for entire fields, um, how do I distribute those resources in ways that work against this tendency towards path dependency and careers, but at the same time facilitate good science? I don't want to fund folks that are poor scientists and aren't gonna produce good science, but I wanna fund folks that have the potential to be good scientists and produce good work who wouldn't get funded otherwise. Right, right, so for you, it's a forced decision. It's because it, you actually have to decide what you do about the answer to that question, who is good and who isn't. I think one thing that people don't think about at NSF is articulation work. We call it sociology of science articulation work. When you get into these positions or if you become, um, let's say a panelist on NSF panels, you can shape the way that science gets funded. You can shape solicitations, the way they're drafted. You can shape priorities inside these organizations. You can feed your communities. And so there's all these interesting dynamics of, of, of uh, the sociology of science and this broader ecosystem of, of funding. And this gets back to the idea of a lone scientist in their lab, in her lab. Think about the funders. Think about the panelists. Think about the program officers. Think about all the women, it's mostly African-American women in NSF who are supporting and doing all the administrative work that make this happen. Think about the guys cleaning the toilets. None of this stuff would happen. That woman would not be in her lab doing this stuff without all of these people. Yeah, in a previous interview with uh, Roel Pacheco Vega, we were talking about um, invisible work. Just to see, you kind of know it, but you then they don't, by definition, it's invisible. So the sea of invisible work that actually has to get done and right, and now we're calling it essential work in the COVID days. Right. But it turns out there's, you know, there's no fungibility there. It is essential. All this other highfalutin, more visible stuff is grinding to a halt when the essential stuff doesn't get done. 
Yeah, I mean, it, for me, it's, it's I, I totally agree with the idea that there's this kind of these inevitable urges and of, of I mean, this dynamic of the rich getting richer, et cetera, that we want to we want to fight against. So so you got to you got to the NSF, what, a year and a half ago? And yes. almost two, two years ago, almost exactly. Almost years ago. OK, as this program director. Um, so we can use this as a segue to talk about that a bit then. I mean, you already mentioned a, a really significant part of it. I mean, honestly, John, when I heard that you had taken that position, my first response was, well, that's perfect. Right? Like a guy at the NSF who thinks about the sociology and the sociological aspects of science. It helps. It helps to have that perspective and to see science from 40,000 feet. Yeah. Is that common there? No. Do you, okay. Most, most program officers are you know, not even in social sciences. It's only one of uh, eight directorates. So most folks are, you know, pick, take your pick of biology, physics, engineering. Right. Okay. Are experts in, in a specific field, not science. Okay. How has the kind of reflexive nature of your behavior that I'm interpreting it to be like interacted with the culture of NSF? That was overly wordy, but you know, I've been an academic for 15 years, so. Sure, yeah. Um, well, I mean, having my sociology of science hat on there is, is quite interesting. Um, I have to be careful with what I say about NSF. I think that's something that's been interesting is that there's never been a more challenging or important time to work for science and the government right now. Right. There's a lot of tensions and conflict among various aspects of our government that make science difficult. Um, and I've, one thing I've run into is the incredibly deep commitment of folks at the National Science Foundation towards science, towards funding basic science um, that, that needs to get done. Um, but seeing some of the things that, that I've talked to you about, I mean, um, getting a feeling for the, for the universe of universities and colleges, getting a feeling for um, the cutting edge of your field, seeing before it gets to the journals, before it gets to the tweet universe, before it gets to anything, seeing these proto ideas develop and get to see where fields are moving and help shape those by funding things that make sense has been fantastic. Um, seeing the ways in which the, politic, the, the politics of it, right? I mean, the politics of different disciplines across NSF, the politics of different agencies within the government, the politics of um, different programs within the directorates against each other, for each other, for resources and whatnot is really interesting. Um, it's a unique and fantastic opportunity for an individual to contribute to their field. It's also career-wise fantastic. It's a platform for moving on to other things, which is in part why I went there. I was at Arizona State, I was in the Honors College, which is cool, it's teaching school, small classes, smart kids, difficult to get out of. I was publishing in good, uh, good journals, the best in sociology, but career mobility is tough, especially in mid-career. And NSF is one of those places that can allow you to do that. And it has, I'm, I'm moving to the University of Oslo. Um, but these kinds of organizations are also, as we just said, um, ways of making you uh, look better, have better resources, be better, be better connected, of, of elevating your status. Sure. Which is something, yeah, I mean, by definition, we all need to worry about it because the folks that don't worry about it don't have the positions. Yes, right. That's right. You got you to keep going and keep it up. And one of the challenges of being there is um, maintaining a research program. So you're able to limp along and, and continue the stuff that's in progress, but you're not putting a lot of new gas into the tank in terms of data, things like that. Um, you do take a brief hiatus, and so you have to, uh, it's almost like a Tesla engine turning off, and then it's got to re-spark again at the end. Okay. I mean, I imagine, uh, you know, studying the NSF as a case study is kind of off the table. Off the table. NSF, um, 
data doesn't come out of NSF. It's, it's, it's very uh, closed in that sense. Um, in order to do so, you'd have to have a contract with NSF. It's the only way to, to work with NSF data. We don't do grants, things like that. Um, NSF, like every agency, protects itself from, from outside. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so you've mentioned, I wanted to get back to this idea of competition, and you kind of just mentioned it now amongst the different directorates, and you also had mentioned competition between like the RA and other organizations. Sure. And, you know, I feel like you, you, we've talked about it in two different ways, or at least I think about it now in two different ways. One is in the sports context or in the cooperative context. So there's a lot of work that's shown that um, conflict between groups can facilitate cooperation within a group. And that's arguably why sports teams are able to cooperate so well. It's because they're in this crucible of uh, a zero-sum game of competition, right? So one person gets to win, one person gets to lose. So, okay, we really want to be the ones who win. So fine, I'll pass you the ball. Um, But then you mentioned this other dynamic, this other competitive dynamic, where once the RA had kind of made it, it started, I'll say, I, I kind of like squabbling maybe with other folks for airtime, et cetera. So there, that's also kind of a, a competition, but it doesn't feel productive. Do both of those roles of competition make sense to you? Do you think that um, competition at times has helped the RA and at times it's hurt it? Competition and, and also the outcome that we're looking at in relation to it. If the outcome in, of competition is the status of the group and the resources it commands and its ability to, to shape a field, or if it's um, scientific knowledge and how that changes. So in some sense, the RA conflicting with other groups, it creates internal solidarity when another group, and we see this, lobs things from the outside, um, you close ranks. Later on, when they become the fastest guns, um, you get a lot more people trying to come and kneecap them, hamstring them, um, upstart groups doing the same thing. And at that point, uh, I think it starts to derail some of the creative capacity of the group to develop new ideas. Um, I don't mean that they don't continue to do work on resilience. I mean that um, new fundamentally creative RA theoretical concepts um, become more difficult to produce. What I meant by where science goes is that it's almost like a hydraulic metaphor, but when you have group A and group B conflicting with each other, um, the synthesis that comes out of it oftentimes can be stronger than either one of the other two positions. And so even though for the two groups involved, it might lead to their atrophy, to their decay, or to, to their perspective falling apart, um, or for knowledge, it could actually be quite beneficial. I mean, that reminds me of this kind of evolutionary interpretation of science, right? We want it to be a competition among theories. Right. And so that competition is ultimately going to get us to the truth if the theories have to compete with each other to explain evidence. Right. And the psychologist, uh, structural and uh, positive psychologist, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi talks about um, science and creativity in evolutionary terms. There's a cycle of um, what gets preserved, like a gene in a system, what gets kicked out, and then it goes back into the culture and reinforces itself. And so, in some sense, you can think about science as a way in which certain ideas become preserved over time, while others that aren't as competitive, that aren't as good, fall out of the system. John, do you have, I mean, there's, there's a kind of a meta nature to this conversation. Um, do you ever find yourself wanting to turn this lens off? Or is it kind of always on when you're engaging with other scientists? It's always on. But I mean, that's the, that's the nature of sociology, I think, in general. Sociology is, if, if nothing else, uh, an exercise in suspended disbelief. Um, I know that 
Um, love is a social construction. It was created several hundred years ago by troubadours, right? And that in the past, people didn't necessarily love their wives. It was an economic thing. Um, I don't tell or talk to my wife about that a lot. And, and I do love her, of course. Um, but you know, on some level, right? And, and I have friendships and I, and I love my friends and I know what makes those people my friends at the same time as a sociologist, you know about altruism, you know about reciprocity, you know about all of these things. Right. You have to live in a world and act like it is the way it is, even though you see the man behind the curtain. Yeah, I think that's right. So it creates this duality basically, right? And you're kind of, you Always. got one foot in each side. Always. It's really annoying too, um, in the sense that you, for instance, you know that meetings are important. You know that meetings have to be done and that everyone has to be heard in order for something to move forward. Um, but you just despise the process, but you have, to, <laughs> you have to go through it. You know, you have to go through it. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is just kind of the complexity of being a human being that we've got these different parts that see different things at the same time. And then some, some parts putting it together or not. This happens in the groups too. Think about when a group's ritual becomes um, forced. When all of a sudden it's not the spontaneous, awesome thing it was, but you feel like you're being drugged through this process by people that have been there longer, by people that are more engaged in it. And it, it feels alienating instead of something that generates solidarity. Yeah. And you see this happen in these creative groups too. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the discourse in my field about bottom up versus top down. If something is kind of more imposed, like the same process or ritual can feel incredibly different based on where it comes from. And where your position is. Relative. Where, yeah. And when you, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned this, right. And whether or not you played a role in creating it, like people want right. to create, they want to feel like they've constructed something. Right. And this, so this gets to, you mentioned the importance of leaders before. And, you know, so leaders are often the folks that are creating new things. And I was in a wilderness first aid course like two years ago. And the, the guy who was teaching us, you know, how to, he was, the, the main thing I remember honestly is that CPR only works one out of every 22,000 times. Um, so that's, you know, that was, that was my takeaway. He, it's not good. It's not yeah. good. You don't want CPR. Yeah. It's like, wait, so what? But he's like, yeah, but I guess we still teach it. Um, but so he emphasized the importance of followership, which has just been a term that's really stuck with me. Right. So it, it's not sexy. It's not glamorous. It's an insult that kids call each other. There's no book in the airport called how to be a good follower. Um, everyone wants to be a leader, but I feel like a lot of what organizations also need, whether they're scientific or otherwise, it, you do need folks that know how to follow. And these roles are, can be ephemeral. It's, you know, I feel like we kind of, maybe this is a, a we kind of essentialize these ideas, right? So I'm a leader and that's what I always am. And it's not context specific. It's like, well, no, I'm a leader in some context, but in other ones, I absolutely need to be a follower. But I feel like we get away from that complexity. And I think, and ultimately to make a group work, sometimes you need to lead, sometimes I need to lead. But I feel like we don't have, the, we don't have as much of a discourse about what it takes to be a good follower. Like there's no, there's no book about that that I've seen. That idea is in part reflected in the sociology of science and a lack of many studies about technicians, about graduate students, about invisible scientists, about folks like that. Um, at the level of the coherent group, it's crucial. You can think about the coherent group that started the idea of evolution with Darwin and T.H. Uh, Huxley, right? Aldous Huxley's grandfather, I think, was called Darwin's bulldog. He was a follower and he was totally ferocious and he would push those ideas that Darwin was out there. I'm talking about. Wow. And I, my, my opinion is that there are a couple RA 
bulldogs. I won't name names, but there are folks that are second generation, um, third generation folks that really push the RA perspective. And I think, you know, that's helped the group. Yeah. There's two other topics I, I definitely want to talk a bit more about now. One is this idea of invisible work. You know, how do we move the needle on valuing invisible work more, right? How do we make the, and I think this is a governance issue writ large. You know, a lot of things that matter the most are the most lagged, the most diffuse, the most invisible. And so right. we, we kind of jerry-rig the system to measure the things we can measure just because we can. Right. We got to pay these folks. <laughs> we got to give them resources too, right? It's nice to get slaps on the back and it's nice to get accolades, but it would be nice if there were more long-term professionally recognized positions for folks that do this kind of work. Yeah. Institutionalize these positions and value them in that kind of way. Um, the NSF director's office tries to do this. They give out awards and things like that. There's awards and they're nice. It's nice to get those things, but creating a viable career path and valuing those things I think is important. I think it's the same thing for faculty at the universities. Um, how do we do that for folks that are non-tenure track? How do we do that for lecturers, folks that are doing crucial tasks in ways that allow them to live their lives and not, you know, run across town at six community colleges killing themselves? I mean, this is something I've struggled with in academia for a while is the, um, the gap between research and teaching and particularly basically with respect to how much prestige and financial resources are divvied out to those two different roles. It's incredibly different. And, and it's the teachers that have the greatest impact on the experience of this sea of undergraduates. Exactly right. And it's also a crucial role in the research system in that they're the ones that share the knowledge that we produce, right? So it completes part of a cycle that we're involved in as well. Yeah. No, I've struggled with that for a while. I mean, I, and, you know, part of me gets it. I think teaching is very difficult and teaching, doing anything well is hard. So teaching well, it's, I've really, in my mind, I've, I've, compared it to being an athlete. Like you can, you, you might've had a good season last year. Do you want to teach, you're going to teach this course for the seventh time. You want to have a seventh good season. You're still going to have to work hard. You're still going to have to get up there and put in the energy to get that rebound. That's right. And I mean, this is, this is changing too. We, we see this dropping number of tenure track professorships, the proportion of tenured professors in the country. Now the proportion of tertiary educators who now are on the tenure track is about 30%. It's not most folks. Most folks are not that. Most folks are teaching all the time for low salaries, for few benefits. That's really what's happening. It's, uh, it's, um, it's also interesting, and maybe this is a chance to talk about COVID for a second, to think about how COVID relates to science and the production of scientific knowledge at universities, um, what's going to happen there. Think about all the different ways um, in which science happens. If you're running a lab that has animals, if you're running a you know, microbiology lab that has bacteria running, if you're a field sociologist trying to do ethnography, if you're a long-term ecologist trying to get long-term ecological research data out of these sites, um, something interesting to think about is the challenges that COVID have for the production of scientific knowledge and how do we, how do we manage the kinds of embodied, I mean, science is people moving around in space, ultimately. Hmm. What does this mean for science over the next few years? That must be a conversation that folks are having at NSF. Yeah, all the proposals now in the social sciences are asking for addendums for COVID-related plans. Um, sociologists and anthropologists around the world are now doing um, books and creating uh, documents for thinking about how to gather data during these times. Um, but it's not just us, it's the lab scientists. Almost every kind of researcher is being impacted by this. And then there's larger ethical questions, like you mentioned. What is essential research? They're debating that all over the country right now. Um, and there's no real definition for it. Yeah. 
Do you think, you know, and these are challenging questions to ask because I think they can feel dismissive of suffering. Are there opportunities here in all of these reflections? I mean, I know people who are study the environment. I've been asking this for a long time. Like, what are the environmental consequences of COVID? Is our localization processes happening? We've got this other disruption coming that, that's going to be bigger. Can Is there any way in which the reflections that are happening and the new norms that are being created be the basis for progress? Absolutely. I mean, this is the biggest natural and social, natural social experiment to happen in our lifetimes. We're having the biggest um, natural experiment in online education that's ever happened in the history of the world. NSF, all our panels are now virtual. How does that matter for decision-making in science and who gets funded? I don't know. Right. I don't think it's as good as face-to-face, but I don't know how or why it's different. I mean, in almost every social, I'm thinking about all the different things that sociologists study are being affected and impacted by this. And it really offers an incredible opportunity to think about so many things that we've taken for granted in the past. Yeah. What does it mean for an organization when you don't ever step foot in it for six months or a year, you don't see anyone face to face. Does it become less real in your own mind? Does it become more diffuse? Do people become less committed to it? I mean, I kind of feel that way. I mean, there's a lot that feels less real to me. Right. Even the way we're dressing, right? Even on Skype meetings with my bosses now, I'm wearing a hoodie. I'm wearing it's it's in <laughs> yeah. my kids on my lap, right? It's it, it's yeah. at some point it breaks down. Yeah, and it feels like it can. And I think we're seeing this play out. Not to get political, which is of course what someone says before they're about to get political. Um, well, but I mean, it feels like it can go one direction or the other or both, right? It can people can hunker down and try to cooperate with folks around them and adapt or they can hunker down and become insular and start vilifying folks. And I feel like we're seeing both of those things happen. Or not hunker down and vilify folks. Right. Yes. Yes. And get out into the world and vilify folks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, think about the economic studies that can be done on on the consequences of this stuff. In some sense, a, a social science wonderland of, of opportunities that are really sad to study. Yeah, I mean, it is this, it's this difficult position I think a lot of us find ourselves in is when, you know, a lot of things that are, you know, if you want to study resilience and vulnerabilities, you got to study bad things. Yeah. Because you got to figure out, you got to see how systems respond to bad things. Right. And that gets into the whole other issue of, of scientists' emotions in relation to what they study. And, and uh, Part of that social science and we can talk about COVID, we can talk about climate change, we can talk about the ways in which the things we study change us and, and, and shape our feelings and stuff too. So John, what you just said there, I mean, reminds me of um, a question that's been in my mind for the last half an hour. You know, in term, when we're talking about education, let's say graduate or undergraduate scientific education, how would you incorporate a lot of what we're talking about? So a sensitivity to these social dynamics, maybe, um, a, a good dollop of self-awareness. So like, how do we cultivate those things in science education? I wasn't taught any of this stuff in my PhD. I don't see it being taught to the people that I see being taught now, but it seems very important. The sociology of science, the philosophy of science, the, the importance of emotional intelligence in science is just not part of the discourse. And I think it's probably dismissed in a lot of circles. I would go even further and just say it might be something for undergraduate. Um, the problem with undergraduate is that we teach these ideologies that just aren't true, that it is the individual investigator, that it is all about merit, that we all, you know, the genius is the one that deserves it and they, they struggled, you know, for millennia and no one recognized their ideas, all of these things. Part of the difficulty with undergrads is they want to believe those myths. And as a sociologist, you're constantly 
puncturing and popping their bubbles, but I think it's crucial. If you're a biology undergrad by going to grad school, you should know about the impact of mentorship. You should know that you should be Google Scholar, Google Scholar searching your potential advisors to see where they're at, um, you know, what their, uh, what their capacity is, what their prestige level is. You should know that having more connections to other kinds of folks matters. Um, if you really want to help people in scientific careers, you would teach them early on because of that path dependency that Merton talked about, um, because of the cumulative advantage. Small differences in the beginning wind up leading to huge differences in the end of our careers. So you'd want to start it as early as possible. Um, it's not pretty. I mean, when you talk about science as conflict, when you talk about it as competition, when you talk about it as socially stratified, when you say that 80% of people don't make it and that 1% of people, even if they do make it, um, struggle their entire lives to do it, it's not necessarily heartening to young undergraduate students, but it's the reality. And I think that's where you would have to intervene. Yeah. Yeah, I'm honestly reminded of a, I, I had a, a philosophy professor who was my hero in undergraduate. And I asked, I went to his office one day and I said, so you think I should get a PhD in philosophy? And he said, don't you do it. One of my favorite pieces is Max Weber, classic sociologist, 1918, lecture in Berlin, science is a vocation. And in the end he says, um, for someone who's trying to get in science, I, I can't advise it. I don't know any place where luck plays such a role. Unless you can stand to see mediocrity after mediocrity climb above you, unless you believe that the fate of your soul depends on getting the next uh, equation or, or chapter right, leave this place because you have no place here. But how much of this is the grass is greener, right? Like, can we, if we leave science, where, where is this beautiful meritocracy, <laughs> man, right? Like, oh, go to, to do fashion. This doesn't, there's nothing like that here. Business, you know, I, I, I think some of these things are hard to escape. I think so. And Weber was a dour old bastard. And I think he would agree. I think um, he's, but his basic, his basic thing was follow your passion because it's going to be hard and you're going to be disappointed. So do the thing you love. And if you're not doing the thing you love, no. it's going to be hard to swallow all the things that we all have to swallow. Right. Yeah. We happen to be lucky enough and probably the people listening to this podcast are lucky enough to be doing something we're passionate about. And that's rare in human history. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to, these are kind of psychologically challenging things to talk about, right? I mean, you, you contemplate the inequity at different levels, you contemplate the small inequities that you have to face, you contemplate the grand inequities that constitute humanity. Um, my father always is helpful to talk about it when I think about these things. And he says, Mike, sometimes you got to let it go. You know, because I'll get wrapped up about whatever small thing and he'll just be like, Mike, it's, you know, just go. Go wake up tomorrow and think about something else. That's right. And I think also keeping that 40,000 foot perspective on yourself too. It's mm. easy to someone else and say, look, you know, that person got there because of their connections, you know, but God damn it, I've worked real hard over the last 30 years. And so I deserve to be here. But realize the advantages that you had early on and you'll see that um, maybe we People should... have good reason maybe to be thinking that things that, that about you. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And it's true of all of us, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you mentioned the word interdisciplinarity at the beginning. What are the consequences of all of these behavioral patterns for interdisciplinarity? Can we have groups actually working together in a social ecological space, right? I mean, I feel like um, 
a challenging default that a lot of supposedly interdisciplinary projects fall into is kind of the baton model of science where the sociologist does some stuff, they pass the baton onto an ecologist who passes it on to whomever. Um, and I feel like one of the things that leads to that is a lack of social capital and common understanding among the folks because that's, that's costly, it's hard to build that. I mean, a lot of what you and I were talking about is these processes that do build that and how wondrous they are, but also maybe how rare they are. You know, academia is pretty individualistic and so we don't necessarily have a lot of thick social capital with a lot of folks that we'd wanna collaborate with across disciplines. Can we actually get into an interdisciplinary space or, or do these kind of groupish instincts that we're talking about really militate against that? I think, I think about it in a few ways. Um, disciplines are necessary. Mm. The idea that we can get rid of disciplines and do everything interdisciplinarity strikes me as naive and, uh, and unhelpful. We need to have biases. Sociology needs to be sociology to bring something unique to an interdisciplinary table. Um, I think that we need depth and we need perspectives that we can combine into new kinds of configurations, but to lose the disciplines, I think would be to, to cut off our nose to spite our face. Um, mm. I think also that interdisciplinary collaboration to some extent is an unnatural act. Uh, it's difficult. It's emotionally hard um, to bring together different kinds of ideas. It's un, uncharacteristic and challenges our basic assumptions about what science is and what's legitimate. And I think that there are social processes, like some of the ones that happened in RA, that can help people come together, lower their hackles, and engage in a more, in a less egotistical way with each other, in an open way that allows sharing and empathy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the idea of openness. I think getting out of, in a way, I, I guess you might call it the 48,000 view of yourself, right? Because we all have this aspect of our personality that's kind of the watcher that's watching the rest of us do what it does in the world. Right. But that, that, that we can lose that sometimes. Yeah, we can lose it. And, and we can actually create the kinds of processes that make it happen. And mm. something that I think is important. So working at the National Science Foundation, um, you see a lot of people are trying to find that creative group, that creative person. And these groups are, are unicorns. They're, 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 they're very rare in the scientific ecosystem. What you do is you create a unicorn breeding ground. You create a place, you create a space, you create an environment that allows for the conditions where unicorns are able to be born. And I think the RA did that. I don't think it's the only way, but you can create institutions and organizations that enable that kind of creativity and that produce unicorns as opposed to trying to, to look for them everywhere. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this seems to, so you mentioned uh, getting um, out from under our own egos, something like that, and being open. So those are, those are kind of like, they're not quite personality traits, but they're in that direction. Something I've wondered is how much selection processes matter, right? So how much does it matter who actually is in the room? I've just been struck by how much it does seem to matter who actually is in the room. Like, how, and how do you select for that? How do you select for openness, right? Getting back to legibility, it's not easy to measure that. It's not easy to measure ego. I mean, it is when we're in the same room with someone, you know it in like five minutes, right? but it's not on a CV. You need a gatekeeper. You need some Lex folks that don't have a lot of ego. Ironically, that person usually has a big ego, <laughs> right? But I saw this again and again in successful NCs working groups. We don't allow bulls in China shops, right? We don't allow people that are gonna try and push themselves around. Buzz said the same thing to me. He said, you know, we want people that are here in an equal um, 
uh, seeking equal participation in scientific knowledge. No one thinks that their ego knows enough to think that they know everything about this. And so having someone that is that social filter that allows people that are open are willing to work together and possibly to kowtow to them is an important aspect of this too, I think. Yeah. Well, and the, and the, the complex part when we think about agency versus structure, right, is that it, once, you, once you have that kind of culture, it becomes easier for people to behave that way. It does. And it also can lead to bad things, as we spoke about earlier. It can lead to groupthink. It can lead to you pushing an idea and pursuing an idea that isn't true. We can think, there's an interesting example, actually, uh, in the 1930s, 40s, I think it is, of N-rays. Um, you know, the French discovered the X-rays, so the Americans wanted something, and this guy came up with N-rays. And he had this complicated device for measuring N-rays, and there was a field around it, there were journals around it. Um, and, and there were a couple of skeptics. And one day the skeptic came into the lab and when the guy wasn't looking, pulled this crucial crystal out of his device and lo and behold, the N-rays were still there. And the guy says, bullshit, I have your crystal here. The whole thing is a hoax and the whole thing fell apart. I mean, these groups can create scientific uh, myths that go on um, for decades, whole fields. Generations, yeah. 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 Oh, okay, yeah. One more thing to say about interdisciplinarity. Some of the work, um, from uh, Harry Collins in England. Uh, he talks about the difference between um, uh, contributory versus interactional expertise. Okay. Contributory expertise means that you have enough depth in a field that you could write papers and be acknowledged in that field. Um, interactive expertise means you have enough depth in that field to interact with, other ex with, with true experts in it and understand each other. And so I think, um, Thinking about interdisciplinarity in that kind of way helps to have contributory expertise at a depth that allows you to bring new things to the table, but to take the time to develop the interactional expertise that allows you to work in a meaningful way with folks across borders. Yeah, and that, that the latter expertise is less measurable. And less common. And less common. It takes time to develop the, the pigeons, the creoles, everything. Yeah, all right. All right, John, so you mentioned that you're moving to uh, Oslo. Yeah, University of Oslo, Department of Sociology and Geography. They also have the uh, Center for Technology, Innovation and Culture. So there's a big STS unit there too, which is nice. Yeah, it was kind of, I think that I was wondering how much you were engaged with the science and technology studies perspective on things. A lot of what you say seems like it would fit pretty well in that, that group. It does. It's an, it's an interdiscipline. And, uh, you know, the sociologists, anthropologists, philosophers, historians, we all contribute to it. And, and in my opinion, that's been a strength. There's people that will say it should be its own field and do its own thing. But I think the connections with other disciplines have always strengthened it. So I consider everything I do to be within science and technology studies at the same time that it's um, also more strictly sociology of science. Okay. So what's next? Um, next few years, I have to learn Norwegian. <laughs> Fair enough. And they're going to they're gonna pay me to do that. So I think you have 1,800 hours a year you have to work, and they're going to give me 400 a year to learn Norwegian, which is great. Um, and then from there, I try and get this Resilience Alliance book out. My, my new idea, I don't know if it's a new idea, but something I've been thinking about for a while is um, to make creativity, uh, to make STS and sociology of science more pro-creativity. And what I mean by that is that science and technology studies in particular has done um, spent a lot of time deconstructing scientific knowledge mm. and showing, you know, where it comes from, um, what are possibly flaws with it, uh, really holding up a microscope to it in a way that's been interesting, but that I think at some point turns into navel gazing. I think in my opinion, the role for STS and the sociology of science now, I mean, we're at a critical moment in human history in terms of the environment, in terms of the climate, 
Um, we have to do something. I think that uh, constructive SDS, not deconstructive, is the way to go. So what I would like to do is take the kinds of insights we've talked about today in the sociology of science, take what we know from STS and create research centers. Particularly, I'd like to propose a climate research center that would bring STS experts together with engineers, environmental scientists, to think about climate futures and to develop new and innovative ways to um, create new social processes, new ecosystems, um, new engineering mechanisms for dealing with those things in the future. So seeing STS and the sociology of science hand in hand, working towards the future, um, I, I think it, it's first of all important for the species. Second of all, if STS as a field wants to continue to survive, I think it's crucial. We're gonna be seeing some really hard funding decisions in the future in science, given what's happening. And I think we need to make our science more relevant to survive. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Finding Sustainability podcast is a pretty small shop, so we don't really have a long list of producers to thank here, or really any list. You can find us at your local neighborhood podcasting app, such as Apple or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. You can also find us on our website, essnetwork.net. And on this site, you can find information about other projects related to environmental social science that we're working on.